We're going to get into the passage as we're continuing in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, I've got a, just a word, though, from yesterday. Uh, my has nothing to do with the message. I just enjoyed it and want to share it with you. And I think it kind of in, in one way, keeping with the song service this morning, with, uh, with a, a conversation I had with Jeremiah, who just got back from a conference where he was facilitating down in Abilene uh, the last couple of days. And as we were uh, just thinking about that together, about particularly our young people and uh, those of us who are young at heart, I wanted to share this. My, it was about 9 o'clock yesterday morning. I was in my office, and I was doing some preparing for uh, this morning. And my grandkids who live, we share a house together. They, two of them came bouncing over, Gates and uh, Sloan, and they had a story for me. They immediately said, Papa, it's snowing. And I don't know if it was really snowing or if it was just a little rain, because it didn't seem like it was cold enough. But if they believed it was snowing, I wasn't going to talk them out of it, okay? It was snowing. And they said, but it's, it's, but it's uh, melting before it hits the ground, okay? And not only that, but there is a pumpkin on the front steps that is rotten, Okay, so we had bought some pumpkins, but you know how warm it's been over the last couple of weeks, so the pump, and it really stinks, they said. And not only that, but we found a toad, okay? And so it was just that, a trilogy of wonder. And I just got to, I just couldn't help but pause and, and, and here there in the midst of that and think about how quickly we purge our life of, of the mystery and the wonder and the discovery of what God would like to bring into our hearts and our spirits. Part of what my leadership class is going to be about is helping us, is, is recognizing again God's presence. I hope you'll do that. I hope you'll do that as we listen to the word, as we uh, discuss the word together. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we... Uh, Jesus has been in the middle of this dinner party, at least in my sermon, I think for three weeks now. And he's offer, already offered some strong words to the host and to the fellow guests about where to sit and who to invite. And the scene, the scene had to be considerably awkward as Jesus was far more interested in announcing the kingdom of God than in social etiquette. And, and possibly just to relieve the tension in the room, one of the guests speaks up. And maybe it was a little bit like one of us who might be in an awkward situation would say something like, well, how about those cards? And I think it was something similar to that. The man specifically says in Luke 14, 15, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know. He, somehow he related that to what Jesus was talking about. And to fully appreciate Jesus' response, we need to understand that this idea of a great banquet feast in God's kingdom is religious and cultural language that had been alive among the Jewish people for 700 years. 
It had its roots in the book of Isaiah, and I think it would be worth our time, if you can hang with me, to read this from Isaiah 25, verses uh, 6 through 8. And if you can see it on that little, all that on one slide. On this mountain, this is from Isaiah, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine the best of meats, and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Now you could imagine this prophecy in Isaiah 25 envisions this time where the Lord of hosts prepares this amazing feast that serves the food and the wine of kings. And the meal will be served on this holy mountain, God's mountain, and the table will include people from all the nations, and it will be such a celebration that there will no longer be any more death nor tears. Isaiah is picturing the essence of salvation of all of God's And while the vision of Isaiah is never far from the consciousness of an Israelite, it's interesting what happened from the 700 years from when Isaiah had that vision to this time of Jesus. Because the passage was then read and reinterpreted again and again through those 700 years. By the Targum in the book of Enoch, in a scroll called the Messianic Rule by the Qumran community. And each of those three versions, interestingly, excludes the nations of the world. As the Israelites were looking at this, they said, well, how can that be? We can't have a feast with our enemies. And they changed the wording of what Isaiah said. Still a problem in the Middle East today. Who is invited to God's party? And who attends? Who wants their enemy at their party? Yet without your enemy, it seems the party would be so much better. In other words, let's reserve the banquet as these rewritings and reinterpretations happened through the ensuing 700 years. 
reserve the tables for our people, for our family, and for our friends. So what exactly is meant when the man says, blessed is the one who will eat the feast in the kingdom of God? It prompts Jesus to tell another parable. And the parable unfolds then in seven scenes, beginning with the invitation by the man who, uh, by the man that the banquet is ready. The invitation means that the tables, if you read the parable carefully, are already set, and the meal, and especially the meat, had been butchered and prepared, and it's on the table. It's, it's served. And in order for all of this to happen, a previous invitation had to go out to, to everybody in the village, like an RSVP in today's lingo, uh, in order for the host to figure out how many people to plan for how much wine to have, how much meat to have, how much to put on the table. The RSVP had already gone out weeks or months before, and the meal is uh, unusual and costly, according to Isaiah 25 and, and, and even in the parable. So it's, the count had to be careful. My point is that everyone that now says no I am not coming, had previously said, yes, I'll be there. Now, the first man says, I've just bought a field, and I must go see the field, please excuse me. And while that might sound reasonable on the surface, it really makes no sense. Before a farmer buys a crop, he looks at it over the weeks, months, maybe even years. This is a once or twice a lifetime purchase. So he researches this land. What type of soil does it have? What kind of drainage does it have? Does it have a field that faces the sun? Because you wouldn't want to buy a piece of land where there's a mountain that's covering it. The sun would be so critical. He, 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 is it terraced? Are there fruit trees on the property? Are the, are the trees healthy? And, and it might be like a little bit like today to say, I have just bought a field is like me telling Becky that I'll be late for dinner because I bought a house on the other side of town, and no, I don't know what it looks like, and I haven't seen it, but yet it's paid for. I just wired the money. And now I think I'll go look at it. Everyone understands that the excuse... Somebody says, I've already done that. <laughs> All right, so, so sorry. Um, everyone understands that the excuse is absurd. Second guest also has an excuse. He says uh, in verse 19, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and on my way to try them out. I'm on my way. Uh, please excuse me. This is even more lame than the first guest because you don't have to be a farmer to know that you try the oxen before you buy the oxen. Why try them? Well, to see if they work together as a team, to see if they are compatible in strength and endurance. If you've got one ox that is worn out by noon, like some of us, okay, and another one that can go all day, 
then that might be, not be the right fit to buy together. So the excuse is more than a declining of an invitation. That's what I want you to see. It is an attempt to publicly insult the host. Third excuse. And yet another said, I just got married and need to get home to my wife. He doesn't even ask to be excused like the other two did. His excuse might not resonate quite so much with our modern sensibilities quite as quickly because in a manner not in keeping with Middle Eastern dignity is this excuse. He's, he is basically saying, hey, I've got a woman back at the house and I'm busy with her. I'm not coming to your banquet. This is rude and offensive in the Middle Eastern culture. Taken together, it is clear that these excuses were self-serving, but more they were insulting. And maybe to a degree that isn't obvious in our 21st century thinking, Kenneth Bailey in a brilliant book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes quotes a Middle Eastern commentary that says it as directly as this. The insults demonstrated the hatred of the guests for the homeowner. That's a strong word. There's more going on than scheduling conflicts and differing priorities. Good excuses are one thing. Bad excuses are another. Excuses that insult are another. Hatred still more severe. So can you imagine the host sending out his, his servant to all these people, and he tries three times, and each time an excuse is made, and at this point the servant says, okay, I've tried three times, I'm done. I am going to report this back to the master. And the next part, I believe, is critical to understanding our parable. What's the master's reaction? Look at verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. The master is upset. He's been insulted. He's angry. He's outraged. See, these people in this village where his friends are now seemingly his enemy. But I want you to think about this. Because I believe right here is our crux. We move from the human excuses to the host's response. And the host, in his anger, in his indignation, could easily plan a retaliation. It must often be awkward to God to put yourself out there in such a generous way and then to be snubbed, to be insulted. But notice, the host does something unexpected. He does not let his anger 
simmer. He doesn't blow his top. He repurposes his anger into action on behalf of other people. He converts anger into grace. He converts his outrage into outreach. And he continues with a posture that is consistent with his own spirit, that of giving and sacrifice and hospitality. Why does he do this? Why does the host do this? Because the host is generous. The banquet has been prepared and it will not be wasted even if people are ungrateful. Go out into the streets and alleys and the towns and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Remember the vision from Isaiah I read just a minute ago? And that envision, that vision include people all people everywhere, and that vision had been lost. You know, in the Qumran community, just up to and at the time of Jesus, their reinterpretation of Isaiah said that no Gentiles would be there. That would be not so good for us. Plus, no one smitten in the flesh paralyzed in his feet or hands, lame, deaf, dumb, or having a visible blemish. All of these can forget it. You're excluded. And Jesus directly confronts their teaching. And while this idea of the great banquet feast living on in Israel's mind with Isaiah's expansive vision was forgotten until now, Jesus reintroduces the beauty of Isaiah's vision in this parable. The least desirable and the least deserving have a place, have a place at the table. Yet bringing in all those who had been left out in all those categories of the lame and the blind and the deaf and, and the, uh, that, were, that were mentioned by Jesus, still there's room. You know why? Because the banquet is massive. The host is generous and gracious. And the servant, I believe, gets energized again and sees all that has been done and all those people that got to come in who had been excluded and there's still empty seats. So the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. 
The group is more than invited. The host says, compel them. Not forced. They still have to choose it. But not casually spoken to either. Don't just leave a flyer in their door. These people are so far out. It's the farthest thing from their mind going to a banquet. A great banquet with great food, expensive wine. It's so far from their mind that you, they feel so forgotten, so unworthy, so unconsidered, so unprepared for a banquet that they require an urgent solicitation. You're going to have to talk them into this. Come, be a part of this. The food and the drink are free, and the table is waiting. Finally, verse 24, and boy, that's a hammer when it falls. I tell you, not one of those who were invited, those who were on the original RSVP list, will get a taste of my banquet. There is another side to this story. Jesus brings the heat and he puts the excuse-oriented people on notice and he puts those who make assumptions that they are in the in-group on high alert. All right, so here we are. Most of us have already accepted the invitation. We already know the flavors of the final feast. We have tasted that the Lord is good. We know his grace. We know his mercy. We don't want to presume upon his kindness. For us, the banquet of love and grace and peace and forgiveness and joy, it's well underway, isn't it? See, we're already a part of the banquet. We're already part of the kingdom. For those of us who have made a response to Jesus by faith, come to him by faith and repentance and baptism, we're already a part. We're fed by the rich foods at the table of God, as Brad led us this morning. As we share in the Lord's Supper, the communion, the supper of the Lamb, as we share in worship in the Word. So I finish with these thoughts. Do some of your excuses. Insult or offend the great host. I can't choose that. You must choose, and only you know. And you must choose, but then you must choose again. I must choose again. And the choice so often for most of us is between 
seemingly good things. Remember a sermon series did a few years back, probably don't remember. We trade the good for the great. And that's the danger. I certainly, I think our parable is telling us you may not get another chance to choose. So choose well today. Then I ask the second question Does your reluctant outreach, particularly to the least, Reveal your ambivalence about the great banquet. <laughs> Just seeing if you're paying attention. <laughs> ambivalence about the great banquet or the host of compelling grace. For this we pray.